Radhika Jones, editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. Hear my words and bear witness to my vow. Night gathers and now my watch begins. It shall not end until my death. I shall take no wife, hold no lands, father no children. I shall wear no crowns and win no glory. I shall live and die at my post. I am the sword in the darkness. I am the watcher on the walls. I am the shield that guards the realm of men. I pledge my life and honor to the night's watch. For this night, and all the nights to come. Hello and welcome to Still Watching Game of Thrones. I'm Vanity Fair Senior Writer Joanna Robinson. And I'm Vanity Fair Chief Critic Richard Lawson. Uh, if you are just joining us, what we are in the middle of doing is counting down, or actually we've passed the midpoint, counting down the top 15 episodes of Game of Thrones leading up to season eight. We've been running in chronological order until we get to the last episode, episode number 15, which we have decided is going to be the most essential, the best episode of Game of Thrones. But for right now, we're in the midst of a chronological countdown. We're in season four. You can go back and listen to all of our episodes leading up to this. Uh, Richard and I talk about each episode as, as we go. And then we've got great interviews with people who have worked on the show this week. Back by popular demand, actually, is co-executive producer Brian Cogman. People really liked his interview on Kiss by Fire, so he came back to chat with us about The Children, which is the episode we're talking about today, season four, episode 10, the finale, The Children, which is written by Weiss and Benioff and directed by Alex Graves. Um, before we get into our discussion of that episode, we wanted to remind you all that if you want to read all of our Game of Thrones coverage, and there will be a lot of it for the final season, season eight, uh, and want to get past that paywall that we have going right now, you can go to vanityfair.com slash thrones, enter promo code thrones, and then you get a discounted deal, uh, which is one year for $15. One year, $15, print and digital. Richard, can you think of a better deal ever? Well, I don't know, paying one coin to take a boat across the sea. That's a, that's a pretty good deal. So, you know, but but if you, if you don't have your magic aria coin, then yes, this is probably the best thing there is out there. Yeah. If you do have a magic aria coin given to you by Jack and Hagar and like covered in blood or whatever it is, uh, and you want to type in promo code Valor Margulis and try to drop that coin and get the one year subscription, you can go ahead and give that a shot. Uh, That might work as well. But if, if that doesn't work for you, 
then try promo code Thrones to get that discount. So we want you guys to be in on the conversation with us all through season eight. So uh, get past the paywall, get this discount, get that going. All right. Here we go. Season four, episode 10. This is the, this is the season finale. This is our first season finale that we've talked about because I think it's the first like good or maybe great season finale that Game of Thrones ever had. Uh, usually they were famous for their episodes nine, but this is episode 10. Here's my 15 word recap of the episode, which covers it all. The Clegane brothers live, dragons are on timeout, and Tywin goes to the bathroom. So. I think that's it. That's that's all we need to talk about. Uh, done and dusted. I mean, you could have said privy, but yes. Ah, privy. Oh, that would have been much classier. Um, all right. Uh, my my backup was Tywin never gets off the pot, but like that that seemed <laughs> too unclassy. So um, anyway, so so Rich and I are going to dole out a few awards for this episode before talking generally about why it is one of the essential Game of Thrones episodes. We're going to start with our obvious MVP of the episode. My obvious MVP of this episode, of The Children, is Brianna fucking Darth. Uh, Richard, what do you say? I mean, I don't think you can really beat that. Well, no, maybe my MVP is obvious. MVP is a little tree child with the fire bombs. Leaf, yes. Leaf. <laughs> um, yeah. and then that's that's a good one. Then sneaky MVP. Uh, I'm gonna go with Kyburn Anton Lesser. We had like we had seen a little bit of what Kyburn was interested in when he sort of helped Jamie earlier uh in the series but here he is going full like mad scientist with his like gross tubes and and prodding of of the mountain and all that sort of stuff and his like real intro to his uh necrophilia sort of well that's maybe a bit too far his interest in the dead let's say um richard who's your sneaky mvp of the episode um that cool thing that Tyrion uses to like ratchet the crossbow the tool mm. <laughs> the loading yeah. tool i don't know what the name yeah. of that is but the crossbow I, ratchet sure. I, f- yeah. I forgot what that why he was carrying it in the hallway then i was like oh right yeah you're like what's he dragging what's that sound and it's like oh yeah here we go um all right uh and then this is the part that we do that I have forced Richard into, which is we perform a quote from the episode. I will say we've got like, we've generally gotten good feedback on this podcast series. People are liking it. The only feedback I've heard is like, maybe don't do the quote thing. And I'm like, you know what? That makes me want to do the quote thing even more. So, uh, here we go with our terrible impressions of characters from Game of Thrones. Um, I'm going to go first. I go, mm, manticle venom. That's my Maester Pycelle impression. Yeah, that's good. Um, what do you got, Richard? Mine is a simple, fuck it, I'm ready. Which is what Clegane says to uh, Arya, thinking she's about to kill him. Oh, beautiful. A lot of, like, I could I could hear the fake blood in your mouth as oh, you were good. saying that. Well, I actually do have uh, some blood in my mouth, yeah. Oh, well, yeah. Uh, your, your podcasting ritual. Um, all right. And then we, and then we're going to do best dressed. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to use your MVP for this one. Actually, mine is Leaf, the child of the forest. Cause she's got like this great, you know, uh, leafy ensemble as she, as she pops up to save the day. Who's your best dressed of this episode? You know, I think for someone on the toilet, Tywin looks pretty dignified. Yeah. He's got that, a flowing black sort his, of number his going on. Night, night cloak. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, and then our, our ship, the people that we are shipping in this episode, either an item or two people. I am shipping. I am wishing for Brand to meet a pair of scissors, uh, get a nice haircut. This is, this is the peak Brand bad hair before he gets back to some better hair, uh, when he returns. But what is your ship for this episode, Richard? It's somewhat Brand related too. I'm shipping Jojen Reed and not dying. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, let's talk about this episode more broadly. Um, this was, you know, there was a huge leap in the viewership between season three and season four because the red wedding was like such a famously, um, bananas thing that happened at the end of season three. A lot more people are watching the show now, but, um, the end of this books, uh, Storm of Swords that George R. R. Martin wrote so much crazy shit happens. And so you just have like enough to ring you all the way through the end of uh, season four, you've got the Mountain of the Viper, which we already talked about, which is a huge enough on its own. Then you've got the whole cattle. Uh, then you've got the whole battle for Castle Black. Gret dies. All of that happens. Um, and then, and then you have everything that happens here. Tywin's dead. Uh, Shay's dead. You know, a uh, child of the forest appears. All of this crazy shit happens. So, um, and Arya leaves Westeros and Tyrion leaves Westeros and the hound seems like he dies, but he doesn't. It's, uh, it's a bananas time in Game of Thrones. Uh, this episode got, I think, a lot of acclaim from people, especially it ends with Arya leaving Westeros and this choral version of the theme starts playing and it just felt like a more more of a statement ending than we've ever seen uh yet so far on game of thrones why does this episode seem like a big deal to you well that ending is really beautiful and it's also the first time that i can think of that um a major character other than danny like left Westeros, especially as you know, it's first definitely the first Stark to kind of leave that world and set off on a new adventure that would bring her far afield. And eventually of course, back to the the main action. Mm-hmm. So that felt significant. Um, I think that Jojen dying was interesting because I, I remembering correctly that he di- hasn't, he's not dead in the books yet. Yeah, this is a big one. Uh, they pulled, so that stuff with Bran and Jojen, uh, is from book five and they sort of pulled it forward, uh, to give Bran, I guess, like a, some sort of cap to his journey in this season. Um, and so where we left, you know, since George R. R. Martin has not published any books beyond book five yet, where we left Bran in the books is they're approaching the cave. There's like an implication that maybe Jojen has died, but he has not actually died in the books. Right. Yet, so. And I think that in, in just kind of bringing Bran's narrative, like up, to the end of book five is this this finale if i remember correctly kind of marked for me like the okay now here we are like aria heading off into the unknown because we are now not completely out of book material but we are out of some of it at this point you know season four was really when they exhausted a lot of it um for for some characters and so it feels like a significant moment and i don't necessarily know that I love what comes next as much as I loved what com- came before. Um, but it's still a crux thing and, and which makes it interesting to talk about. And I think there are a lot of great things in this episode. Yeah. Season four, I think really is a high point of the, of the series. And I think you're right. This is also a big moment in the fandom, I think in terms of um, at the end of this book in uh George R. R. Martin's book series, and I don't think this is spoiling anything for anyone because I this is not happening on the show. But the end of this book, uh, 
Catelyn Stark is resurrected into this figure called Lady Stoneheart. And so a bunch of book fans were expecting that that's how this is going to end. And this was, this episode is called The Children. And so they're like, you know, get it. She's the mom of the kids and that's what's going to happen and all this sort of stuff. And it didn't. And there are a few other changes to bringing the brand stuff forward. The way that Tyrion leaves is a little different. Like the way he kills Shay is a little different. The way he leaves Jamie's a little different. This is really like, feels like a bit of a flex, you know, in terms of like, moving from a straight adaptation to more adaptive choices the the showrunners the writers in the show saying more firmly this is our narrative it's going to be a little different than the narrative you know yeah no i'm exactly and so it's a really significant episode in that in that you know and i and i think that like re-watching it and and um you know as we head into the kind of later seasons um uh, you know, I am starting to see the value in the way that um, the the show kind of takes its own license, you know, because when I was watching the the, the, the show, like in, in real time um, back then, like I the books were a lot fresher in my head and I felt a lot more loyal to them. And I felt maybe sort of <laughs> in vain, dimly sure that George R. R. Martin would finish the books. And, and so I was like, well, let's just, you know, we should have waited or something like that. And now I'm kind of, you know, five years later, uh, I'm, I'm more of the mindset of like, all right, like, I don't care who ends the story, just like, let's end it. I want to see how it ends. Um, so I think I'm a lot more forgiving of the, the show, um, you know, departing, uh, from the, the, the given narrative. Um, even if it means that an interesting character like Jojen, who I think probably could have, probably might have served a bigger role in, along with his sister Mira um, has to, has to go. Yeah. It's, and it's interesting because um, I feel the same way about Mance Raider. Like this is a good, um, this episode opens with some really great, I think Mance Raider stuff. Uh, Kieran Hines is a great um, actor in that role. That's a figure that in the books, you know, we does indeed do a bit more than he ever does on the show. And we expect to be very important going forward. And the show's like, guess, you know, eventually, you know, spoiler alert for, you know, what's coming up, but like, Mance ends up being not that consequential. And overall, if you think back on the show, you, Mance Raider is very low on the list of characters that you think of as like being important. But watching this episode and watching his interaction with John, uh, which is so satisfying as they sort of toast their fallen friends and all of that. Um, it's interesting to think of, of what might have been. And then also just, yeah, with time and distance, you have to respect the tougher choices that they had to make. Uh, on this adaptation so or or not your mileage may vary but i i find myself being less uh less of a stuck-up book nerd uh on this rewatch you know so yeah and i think that like this kind of shaking off of the old ways is happening you know obviously elsewhere in this episode with tywin dying um you know that was inevitable we book readers knew that was coming it's a great scene it's very well done um but it also you know means that well, it means that Tyrion is his fate is now kind of cast to the wind. It means Cersei now is sort of without um, a particular sort of guiding person, you know, kind of looming above her. And so it frees characters up in a way that is risky, certainly, and maybe not all the risks that the show takes or the story takes pay off. But like, you have to do that if you're going to have a show that goes on for season after season after season, it can't all exist under the same kind of tight, you know, framework or rubric, um, because people would get bored. So 
you know, this, this episode stands kind of as testament, I think, to a lot of risky narrative choices, um, you know, getting rid of old character, beloved characters, sending other beloved characters into whole different, you know, new situations with, you know, so they won't be interacting with anyone else we already know. Like, it's an interesting equation that they have to do. And, um, I think that there are moments in this episode where they just handle it so well. Again, that ending scene with Arya is just, I think, such a gorgeous, um, almost little tribute to its, uh, itself, you know, like it's almost like the show being like, well, here we go, guys. And like, one of our youngest cast members is, you know, leading the, leading the charge. I think it's nice. Yeah, I completely agree. And there's also just like that great performance from Maisie in this episode with the hound. Um, like Arya just, you know, th- that is straight from the books, right? That's a straight book yeah. adaptation, but it's like in her performance, watching her mature over the seasons. And then, you know, like Arya then goes into a plot line, you know, it's brave of the show to send her off on this plot line. I think your mileage may vary whether or not you enjoy her time in Bravos, but, um, but this feels like a real leap forward into who this character is and will become. And, and I think Maisie, like, uh, well, here's what I'll say. I'll say there are some points down the road where I think Arya is almost too robotic in a way that it's hard for me to access. Mm-hmm. And here you still, you have her giving that like sort of flat assessment of the hound, but there's still so much humanity going on uh, in, in that performance in like Maisie's eyes and stuff like that, that I think is really captivating. Yeah, totally. I mean, if you wanted to stretch a little bit, you could say that this is a metaphor or an allegory for a young person going off to war. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Arya is going off because she thinks she has some sort of principled thing. I mean, yes, in her principle, it's about getting revenge. But like, who could say that, you know, young soldiers who signed up for the military after 9-11 weren't in some way seeking revenge in Afghanistan, you know, and that she's hardened by it. It's not exactly what she expects. And she comes back a little bit. Um, I don't want to call people with PTSD broken. They're certainly not broken, but altered, you know? Um, so I think yeah. you could maybe infer that if you wanted to write a paper about it, but <laughs> I'm not encouraging anyone <laughs> to do that, but it's, there's please, a free idea if you want it. Please cite Richard as your source. Um, yeah. And so this, um, as we mentioned, this is the, the last episode for a few characters, most specifically Tywin Lannister, I think is, is the character maybe we miss the most going forward, not because he's like the best, uh, you know, most virtuous character, but because Charles Dance just such a delight in every mm-hmm. single like scene that he was in. Uh, and so it's a good, it's a good goodbye for him. I love, I love this scene in the book. I think I, if I remember correctly in the scene in the book, there's a famous line where it's like, um, you know, contrary to the rumor for years or something like that, Tywin Lannister did not in the end shit gold or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which is a great George R. R. Martin line. But, um, you know, they give, they give Tywin a lot to do in this episode, not just this death scene, but also this earlier scene with Cersei, uh, where he learns some information that I believe Tywin actually never learns or really reckons with in the book, um, about his kids and just, Charles's performance through all of that is, I, you know, I, I love this send off for him. Yeah. And I think we also have to say an RIP to Shay, um, who, you know, I was rewatching this scene. I don't, I guess I don't really remember in the books, but like, it's, it's hard with the show. I think with, with Jamie and Tyrion, you know, like trying to make relatable, likable human characters out of people who do really terrible things. Like with this thing with Shay, where it's like, did he have to kill her? You know, 
Um, and was it, was he, if he, if he was killing her out of a sense of jealousy or whatever, like that's not good, but we're still supposed to be kind of rooting for him. So it's a really complicated thing, but I think that, you know, that aside, like, I'm glad that Shay, I mentioned it on a past episode. I'm glad that Shay gets more of a sort of presence in the, um, in the, in the, the show. I mean, she's, she's in the book, but like it, this death feels bigger, uh, on, on screen, um, because we've gotten to know her a little bit better. So, um, you know, she's one of those many characters kind of who were in like a season or two and then kind of got lost along the way, um, but should not be forgotten. Yeah, absolutely. And, and they, um, they, they tweeted a little bit. Um, I don't know. I think Sybil Kelly, who played that character got kind of a bum, bum rap from, uh, fans throughout. And, uh, you know, I think especially in this rewatch, I've really appreciated, uh, a lot of what she had to do. Um, a lot of sort of the obstructionist role she had to play in certain respects. So there's all of that. And, and then there's also like, so, so Jojen dies, um, I think you texted me like, I can't believe you made me watch Jojen die again. Um, but also, or no, I was on the Twitters, but also, um, there's this like crazy VFX scene with these skeleton whites sort of attacking him. And, um, you know, uh, th- like looking back, it's not the best VFX scene that Game of Thrones has ever done, but mm-hmm. it was at the time a leap forward for them. Uh, cause we hadn't seen uh, the army of the dead in that state of decomposition before, you know, so they sort of did this, like, um, it felt, it felt kind of like throw a throwback sort of, uh, it's what Ray Harryhausen. Yeah. I mm-hmm. pronounce it. Yeah. Like a sort of Ray Harryhausen, like almost claymation skeletal thing. Um, but a little different, but I don't know. It's just, um, I think, I think a lot of people were, were taken by surprise yeah. uh, by seeing that. What did it remind me of? There's something that's very similar in a movie with like skeletons with swords. If anyone listening, Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> no, it's something no? older that looks more like stop motiony. Well, that's what I'm talking about. Ray Harryhausen, I think, like like a Sinbad sort of. Um, Is that what I'm thinking of specifically? I think so. Yeah. Okay. Well, if someone knows if the, if if there's a specific thing that I'm forgetting, it might be a video game. That, okay. that's, that's also possible. Um, from like my youth, but anyway. Um, oh, it's yeah. J- uh, Jason, Jason on the Argonauts, I think, is the Ray Harry house. It's, it's something that it gets compared to, but maybe you're thinking of it. And it's skeletons? Yeah, skeletons. Okay, that's, that's, that's what yeah. I'm thinking of then, almost yeah. certainly. Um, but yeah, it's an interesting scene, you know. Um, I, <laughs> it's easy to forget that this is kind of a zombie show. <laughs> Not always, but like, yeah. sometimes yeah. it just is. Um, and they're not zombies in that they're, I mean, they're like popping out of the ground. They've been lying in wait. Like they have tools. Like they're, they're not quite, quite zombies, but like it's close enough that you're like, Oh, right. Um, and it's, it's creepy. You know, it's a, it's a creepy scene. It's well done. It's, I mean, I remember it being unexpected. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's definitely a sign of things to come. Um, particularly with our, the next episode we're going to cover hint, hint. Yeah, and another um another flex for the show is that this is, you know, um Bran Stark and Mira and Hodor take a whole season off after this, you know. Yeah. That's just uh like and that's something that George R. R. Martin does in his books much more. Much more characters take entire books off. You know, um, and I think the show rightly so does not want to do that too much because it doesn't want to like make you forget you know, who <laughs> a character who was Bran Stark animal blah, blah. So they did it sparingly. Um, 
yeah, Bran, Bran and the crew go away for a whole season. So, um, yeah, that's something yeah. I wonder if just watchers of the show don't realize is that like book four, like most of your favorite characters are not in. You know, well, and that's yeah, and that's why you know we'll talk about well we'll talk about this in our in our next episode maybe a little bit more, but that's why you get some extreme adaptive choices like Sansa Stark going to Winterfell, because that's how you keep Sansa. Well, it's a, a way to keep Sansa Stark in the narrative right. um, at all. So yeah, that's part of it. All right, is there anything else you want to say about uh, the children before we we move on? No, I think it's time to get on the prow of that ship and just sail off uh, to Bravos, or rather, to our next um, episode. <laughs> All right, so stay tuned. We have a great interview with a co-executive producer and writer Brian Cockman. I'm Claire Fallon, and I'm Emma Gray. We're culture writers, podcasters, and hosts of the show. Love to see it. Every week, we give an unapologetically feminist dissection of reality dating shows, rom-coms, and other romance narratives. We unpack all the weird messages they send us about love, sex, and dating. And we dive into all the details with special guests like actors, authors, and cultural critics. You can find Love to See It wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Tuesday. Hi, I'm Lale Arakoglu, host of Women Who Travel. Each story from our guests and listeners is totally unique and utterly personal. We love hearing about your first impressions when visiting someplace new. My first trip to the Patagonia region was on the Argentine side. I couldn't believe the expansive territory. It's like being in Tibet. The emptiness and the harshness really, I found transformative. Or... A story told when safely back on dry land. You know, things happened every single day. I ran out of gas on a jet ski in the middle of the ocean. And I was like, what if a sea creature comes to eat me? But then I'm delusional. I was like, I'll make friends with it and it won't eat me. And maybe I'll ride that back to shore. That's how it works. (laughs) Join me, Lale Arakoglu, every week for more adventures on women who travel, wherever you listen to your podcasts. popular demand we have executive producer brian cogman hello brian cogman welcome back back by overwhelming unbelievable popular demand just internet breaking popular back, demand, not I'm because sure. i i begged you but because yeah not, not because someone failed at the last minute <laughs> <laughs> that's okay right. that's my whole that's my whole career in a nutshell this is uh, this is par for the course Oh, okay. Um, That's beautiful. But okay. But when I did ask you to do this, you did, you, you knocked my socks off by telling me that this might be your favorite episode of Game of Thrones, which I thought the last one we talked about, but I think the distinction is the last one we talked about, which is Kiss by Fire, is the favorite episode of Game of Thrones that you wrote. Indeed. This might be your favorite overall. Is that correct? I, yes. I, I have many episodes I like better than any of the ones I wrote. Um, <laughs> So, so yeah, Kiss by Fire is my favorite of my scripts, but I think this might be, you know, it's neck and neck between The Children and Winds of Winter, um, mm-hmm. uh, and both both sort of represent two very, I don't know, distinct phases of the show in some ways, so maybe that's why it's hard for me to choose, because there's, you know, there's sort of phase two, which is season five on, and, and then the first four seasons, so... Um, but I rewatched the children last night and it's, I, it might be my favorite if only 
if only because there's one sustained sequence that I think is the best thing we've ever done that's in the children. So that might give it the edge. But then again, when I rewatch Winds of Winter, because I'm doing a little bit of a rewatch myself for cathartic reasons, mm-hmm. um, I'll probably I'll probably change my mind then. So they're they're neck and neck. But for now, sure, let's say the children is my favorite. Um, well, this is what I appreciate about you, Brian Cochran, is you always do your homework, and I really appreciate you rewatching the episode. I know, not just for me, probably for No, it was, it was my pleasure. It, it, threw, it threw off my watching order, because I, I, I'm only in the middle of season two right now. Are you going to make it? I don't know if I am, actually. I was hoping I would, and, and, you know, my actual, you know, job keeps getting in the way. This is the part where I'm going to try to guess what you think is the sustained sequence that might be the best thing you guys have ever done. Uh, what does Brian Cogman like? He likes character. I'm going to go with Tyrion's escape. Is that is that your sequence? Uh, well, I love it. No. No. But I love that sequence. <laughs> what is That's it? not to disparage that sequence in any way. <laughs> no, no. Uh, what is it? It is. It is. Uh, and it, uh, I, to be fair, I say sequence, it's really three scenes strung together. So it's, it's about, I should have clocked it when I watched it, but it's, it's probably, it probably, it's about 10 minutes or so. Um, it's, it's maybe a little longer. It is, uh, Brienne meeting Arya. Brienne fights the hound. Arya leaves the hound. That was my second guess. Yeah. I think that is my favorite 10 or so minutes of Game of Thrones. Um, and I, and that was backed up again when I watched it last night. It, it really knocks my socks off for a lot of reasons. And I have a personal connection to it too, because I was the, I rarely got to be the, um, ranking writer producer on set in anywhere that wasn't Belfast. Uh-huh. But, uh, because David and Dan, since it's their show, seem to find themselves in places like Spain and Croatia oh, wow. while Brian, um, <laughs> did Belfast. Uh, and I love, I love Belfast. This, is, this, this gave me a career because the two of them cannot be separated. So, um, so they, they manned one set and I always manned the other right. one and we always had two main units going. So it, you know, that, that was my, uh, that was my, uh, trial by fire. But, um, but I got to do two weeks in Iceland for season four that we shot in the summer. There was that one, there was one season where we shot in the summer. So, the majority of the Arya Hound exteriors from season four are actually shot in Iceland. Mm. Um, and then a couple of other bits too from, uh, uh, the, the wildling raid on that little village on Ollie's right. village is in Iceland as well. And a couple of the scenes. Um, so I was, so I was the, the ranking writer producer on set for that sequence. So it's, it's sort of near and dear to me, but I love every, I, I to me, it's it was a it's a perfect example of us uh, adapting something wonderful that George did from the book, but putting our own uh, spin on it and uh, making it work within the context of our show. And the final scene with him and uh, Arya, if you watch it closely, if you've been watching the entire season, it calls back virtually every emotional touch point uh, of their journey. He calls back in all the dialogue every conversation they've had in the previous season, um, in the previous episodes of the season, um, it, it, very subtly. And uh, I just, uh, and I love Rory's work and Maisie's work in that scene just astonished me. The fight scene is the most brutal. In recent interviews, we've sort of talked about how uh, the Jamie-Danny face-off uh, was the first time you had a face-off where you really you know, didn't know who to root for. 
And that's not exactly, that's not entirely true. I think what it, what it was was, I think the reason it hit us all so hard and we've been saying that in interviews is, I think arguably it's the first time you've seen Danny face off against someone and you're not sure if you're rooting for Danny. Right. I think it's safe to say that. Pretty much any adversary she had previous to Jamie, it's like, <laughs> obviously you're rooting right. for. Um, so anyway, that said, I really, truly think the Hound Brienne fight you could maybe make the argument for Grit and the Wildlings, but no one's really, I don't think anyone's really rooting for the Wildlings to destroy all the Night's Watch. I think even though you kind of, you like a Grit and you like Tormund, you want John to win, at least maybe, I mean, at least I do. But <laughs> truly, I think with the Hound and Brienne fight, uh, at that point, and I think specifically, it comes down to one line for me. Uh, I even got choked up watching it last night when he says he's protecting Arya right before the fight starts. Yeah. That's when, if you've had any doubt about him up until that point, you love him. Because he lets his heart out in that moment, very briefly. She says, that's what you're, that's what you're doing, protecting her, that's what I'm doing. And it's, it's like, oh, no. <laughs> you, just, you, you, you just realize, uh, oh, no, I don't know who I want to win this fight, you know? Um, so the brutality of that fight and the fact that both of them are absolutely right in doing what they're doing from their point of yeah. view, which I think is the other, the other beauty of George's books and our, and hopefully our show is that you, you always understand where each character is coming from. They're all the heroes, their own stories. Um, and then, and then, and then just the beauty of the Icelandic location, the way Alex shot it. Uh, uh, it's just, um, it's, it's my, it's my favorite sequence, maybe in all of Thrones. It might be, it's certainly one of the most dazzling sequences. Cause like we, last time we talked, we talked about, um, when we talked about Kiss by Fire, we talked about the Jamie and Brianne bass scene and we talked about, um, you know, both Nicola's performance in that and Gwendolyn's performance in that. This, mm-hmm. Gwendolyn's performance in Kiss by Fire is so good for a million reasons, but a lot of it is obviously reactionary. Watching her do this is, um, oh. It's yeah. just, it's even more Brienne and, and like watching that yeah. first Aria interaction where they're meeting each other as mm-hmm. like women with weapons and sort of like the, the self recognition and the warmth there. And then the immediate like concerned hands on hilts sort of like situation. And then I was just, I, I, I watched yeah. the interaction several times because I, I just wanted to stare at Gwendolyn's face the whole time. And then I also kept getting distracted by the like beautiful green hills behind her and kept like going back and forth and i was like i don't know where to keep my eyes so the answer is that location that location was astonishing that was an astonishing location and yes you're absolutely right um the the subtle again it's it's all faces i mean we've talked about this last time and 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 both Maisie and and gwen when they're when they're they see that they recognize each other they understand each other immediately and What's so great about that, that, I think the other reason this is my favorite sequence is it's a, it's a wonderful example of all of the threads that we've been laying for all of these characters and all of the uh, external events kind of crashing together. You know, he, he, uh, he note, the hound notices the Lannister gold in his sword because he, on that sword because he knows Lannister gold. He's been growing up with it his whole life. Like, we, the, the way the guys, I think, uh, David and Dan weaved in the sort of mythology in ways that are, again, about character. Um, and, and it's heartbreaking because ultimately they, they should all be on the same yeah, side. Yeah. And it's, it's just the, that's what I think so gut wrenching about the sequence. And Arya, who, you know, has needed a protector 
you know, now she's got two and, and yet they, <laughs> they can't, you know, there's, there's no way to really explain, you know, what's happened at this point. And, and they've all been so hurt, the three of them, uh, up until this point that it could only erupt in this, in this horrible, brutal thing. And then, and then her leaving him, I remember, um, being so impressed with Maisie's, uh, poise and, um, uh, her, her discipline and being able and being able to play that scene without an ounce of external emotion, you know, um, just cold. Uh, and, but yet not, you know, I think you still sense do, that there's yeah. something there between them. So it's, I mean, for someone as young as she was to pull that off is, is extraordinary, but Alex was great at, at those kinds of scenes too. He was really terrific with the, um, with the actors, um, and, and, and taking them through it beat by beat. And, um, so it's, it's a great sequence. It's a great sequence. And another thing that's fun about it too, is we, um, it's a little, just in terms of the light, we, we assumed that everything would be overcast at that time of year in Iceland. And if you watch, if you watch very carefully, uh, when Arya meets, uh, Brienne in the first section of the scene, and she's up there doing her little water dance. It's one of my favorite shots actually in the whole show as well. When she comes upon her practicing, mm-hmm. that's a gloomy overcast day. The next day we had to shoot the fight and it was bright, bright sunlight, like Sergio Leone blasting sun on you. And I remember Annette, our uh, amazing director of photography was just, you know, <laughs> couldn't believe it. It's like, what, what is this? What are we going to do? And she, of course, being the genius that she is and, and everything that, you know, you, you, you can sort of see when the fight starts, it's a little brighter. Um, but they just leaned into it and made it work. And it has this wonderful kind of spaghetti Western feel to it. Yeah. Um, and, and you don't really notice it, but I remember uh, that was an example of, of the amazing crew just rolling with the punches, which we did all the time in terms of uh, weather and things we couldn't control. Well, so I want to contextualize this episode a little bit in like the larger narrative yeah. of Game of Thrones, which is um, this, Absolutely. this is an early um, example that I can recall of, Something seen on screen kicking up a really um huge fight among the book readers loving the show because um I love the Brienne and the Hound fight. You love the Brienne and the Hound fight. What I was reminded of rewatching it was this argument that happened all of a sudden of book readers being like, no way Brienne of Tarth could beat the Hound in combat. This is ridiculous. Like, it was just sort of this hilarious... I have two words for that, which is fuck that, but... Yeah, I mean, it was like, it's, it was a... It was, it was a um... A revealing moment, I think, for the fandom, what, you know, which is just sort of, um, and, and the beginning of, of some other, uh, you know, interactions to come of, of book readers feeling certain things. Um, you know, do you have anything beyond sure. that two word response or we can just. In terms of story, uh, we did, we did wound him. So I just want to remind everyone he was, he is, if, if you need it, if you need a reason for Brienne to beat the hound, uh, he was wounded in the, uh, earlier episode of Roars bites him. Right. And it kind of festers. Uh, so he's sort of, the idea is that he's a bit weakened, um, a bit. Uh, I don't necessarily think you need that as an excuse, I but, agree. um, yeah. if that makes anyone feel better, great. Um, you know, in terms of, look, I, I, it, it, it's always a tricky thing when you talk about the, 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 the book changes and, and, you know, talking about why you come to certain decisions a it's kind of hard to remember exactly why um in, in some cases i think <laughs> in this case it was i think in this case very simply 
Uh, I remember it was, I think, David's idea. I remember him pitching it to us uh, in the previous season. We're shooting season three, mm-hmm. and he pitched that idea. Um, he said, what if it's Brienne that that wounds the hound and before Arya Lee? And we all just went, well, yeah, of course, because again, we're making a TV show here, and there are only a certain amount of, I mean, as many characters as we have, uh, <laughs> you know, there's about four times as many in the book. And I think when we decided we were going to expand the Arya Hound storyline and then make an entire, almost, I mean, yeah, an entire season's worth of story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, to have that, to have the climactic fight that wounds the Hound come from some random person attacking him, it just, we just felt it wouldn't have the dramatic payoff it needed again for the medium that we were writing it for. Yeah, yeah. You know, a novel, a novel is different. So, um, so that was the, I, yeah, I guess I, sure I, mean, I, reason, I didn't you know? mean to make you like have to defend it. Cause I think it's a, I think it's a great, adaptive oh, no, 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 no. I, I, I just, I, I just, it just I, rem- makes me, it reminded me of, uh, maybe one of the earliest, um, squabbles that happened, you know, of many squabbles. Right. And there will always be squabbles in when, in, in a matter <laughs> of an adaptation. Uh, it was just sort of like an early hilarious, mm-hmm. uh, the, yeah. I mean, yeah. Book four is where, but book four, or season four and, and the latter half of the third book is where, you know, the adaptation be- started to become, I guess, freer. Although it had been, it had been pretty much from the beginning in a lot of ways, but, yeah. um, breaking up that big book that is told from POV chapters meant a lot of reshuffling. And I was actually struck. I forgot that there are one or two pretty uh, notable sequences that are from, uh, book five, um, which I, I just had forgotten. Um, I'm almost positive the uh, child, uh, the charred bones of the child put at Danny's feet is from book five uh, and her closing up the dragons. And I'm all, and I'm Brand very stuff. sure that the, uh, yeah, the yeah. attack in the cave yeah. is from book five. Yeah. Um, so that was when we, it really became about the rhythm of the storytelling of the show, you know, dictating when certain events took place uh, a little more. And of course, when we when we uh, tackled four and books four and five together uh, in, in season five, that you know that became a whole other animal. But yeah, I guess I guess season four is when that stuff started to happen a little bit more. And the, yeah, and then you know, on the flip side of that, I remember I distinctly remember the children being a moment when. TV critics more than ever, you know, whatever, whatever those people's value is, um, sort of sat up and <laughs> sat up and took a, a, attention of like this as your most triumphant finale. You know, Game of Thrones was so famous mm-hmm. until then of having these huge penultimate episodes and then the wrap up table setting sort of episode at the end of the season and this felt like you know especially yeah. with Arya leaving Westeros with everything that happens with Tyrion Tyrion leaving Westeros too um, and then the big sure. like choral Ramin Javadi score kicking up at the end it just felt like a big bow to put on the end of this great season and so you know what you know what was both your intention in maybe making this a, a splashier finish than when we seen before and then what was your reaction mm-hmm. when it was received so well Again, the story just kind of lays out the way it lays out. I don't think we were necessarily thinking, oh, you know, we're going to make a finale that's a bit more um, propulsive or a bit a bit more uh, epic and event filled this year because the uh, I don't really think it was conscious. I think it, in many ways, it, it's because you know the end of the third book is just 
bananas. Yeah, it really. Is. I mean, it, it comes back to it comes back to George. I mean, we what 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 are a number of battles or two or maybe even three battles in the book engagements in the book would become kind of one episode for nine. Um, the Battle of Castle Black. So yeah, yeah, Battle of Castle Black. Uh, uh, because it's just on a practical level that 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 makes it made the most sense to do it that way. But I think it worked story wise too. Um, so that left a lot of, not just a lot of big story threads and events for uh, the finale. And actually, if there's any demerit against the children as the greatest episode of Game of Thrones, it's that Sansa, who's maybe my favorite character along with Jamie, isn't in it. Um, and the reason, and that there wasn't room for. It. So we we end Sansa and Theon season in episode eight. Yeah. Of of uh, of season four. Yeah. Um, because there's just there was just so much. Um, so I don't know. It all just sort of again. It's it's kind of it's kind of the rhythm of the story sort of laying naturally. Um, you know, we knew we didn't want to end episode nine with Stannis riding in with the cavalry because it would feel uh, it would feel too um, rhythmically like Blackwater. You know, yeah, um, where the cavalry comes in and saves. The, so it, that it would have felt like too much of a remake of Blackwater. So we thought, okay, well, how do we how do we make how do we make it work where it, you open the finale with it? So it, it kind of just lays lays out that way, and as a result, you have a, a slam bang action sequence at the beginning of, of the finale, which wasn't typical for us at the time, and uh, and just the emotional roller coaster that the, the, the that happens. I mean, the, the, it was, it was fun watching this after having just talked to you about, uh, Kiss by Fire because I, I'd forgotten how powerful that, uh, Tywin Cersei scene oh, uh, is. It really is. Which, yeah. which was invented for the show. I mean, at this point in the books, Cersei is not a POV character. So, um, that was, and then Charles is working. I mean, both of them. I mean, Lena, Lena's amazing, uh, in, 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 in that, in this episode, I think. I mean, she's amazing in general, but, uh, you sort of see Cersei. You sort of you sort of see the Cersei that's going to sit in the Iron Throne, kind of coming out in this episode, in some ways. Um, yeah. And 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 I think the work Charles does when she tells him the truth about her and Jamie, it's the only time you really see him crack in the whole series. He doesn't even really crack at the end when Tyrion's about to kill him because he just figures, "I'll get out of this." Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'll, you know, <laughs> I'll get, uh, I'll, I'll pull my pants uh, up and this will be fine. I'll figure this out. Yeah, yeah. I'll get out of this. He's not really going to kill me. <laughs> yeah. Um, which is, but so I, this, I, I'm pretty sure that moment where he says, no, I don't believe you and twitches like that. I think that's the first time and the only time in the whole series you see Taiwan really, you know, crack. Yeah. And it's thrilling. You know, again, it's a testament to Charles's discipline in, uh, all of the other scenes. The, the lesser actor shows his cards. Uh, in other scenes. Right, right. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, and I like to think we wrote it that way too, and he's just doing what we wrote, but, you know, um, he, that seems great. Um, sorry, I got off on a tangent, I forget why. Oh yeah, just, it's just, yeah, it's a finale. It's just a lot. There's a, there's a lot to it, and, um, but I do remember it feeling special. I do. I remember when we aired, I remember being very proud of it when it aired, and, and to answer your question about the reaction, uh, it's funny. The reaction I remember most and being so annoyed by is people just annoyed that Lady Stoneheart yeah. didn't appear. Yeah. <laughs> and I understand why people might be annoyed about that. But I remember thinking to myself, 
okay, fine, granted, but did you watch the other <laughs> hour? Like, aren't you at least appreciative of that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yep. that's what you sort of want to scream when, when you work so hard on something. Of course, <laughs> of course it is. Okay, I'm sorry Ed Sheeran annoyed you, but did you watch the rest of it? <laughs> did you like that? Because you're spending a lot of time bitching about Ed Sheeran, yeah. who I think did a nice job, Ed- but that's a different episode. Um, <laughs> well, it's funny because I was, you know, on a personal note, I was re-listening to, um, you know, an early podcast that I did at the end of season four. Because actually one of our listeners was like, you, oh, yeah. you guys should go back and listen to yourselves at the end of season four. It's hilarious. So I was listening to it. Uh-oh. And I was just like, I was so stuck up and book fussy at that time in my life. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, I'd li- well, and I'd like, you know. I'd like to believe I've, I've come some, some distance since then, but like, um, the, the, the notion of like slight adaptive changes were still like so perturbing to some people, maybe including myself. And now you're just sort of like sure. w- with time and distance, seeing the larger story that you guys are telling. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I, and I should be clear though. I should be clear. I, I never, I would never say someone should feel something about I mean, you feel how you feel. Oh, yeah. yeah, And uh, look, there are choices we've made that I look back on and go, oh, you know. (laughs) But uh, I just remember, I just remember specifically because I was so proud of that episode. I thought it was such a, in some ways, a leap forward. And then the filmmaking was so amazing. And I thought, and and I, and I, season four is my, probably my favorite, is actually season four is certainly my favorite season. So I just remember, um, being like, oh, but guy, you know, okay, fine, yeah. Well, yeah. You, so you were hoping Lady Stoneheart would be here, but come on. <laughs> so an example, an example of that, an example of like a healing conversation I had around that is, you know, in my in my mm. book fussy mode, writing about that episode for Vanity Fair years and years and years ago, I said, well, you know, yeah. in the book, uh, the Tyrion departure is much darker. His goodbye with Jamie is oh, yeah. is very like angry and awful and divisive and like why. Why, why did they change that? And my editor, my lovely editor, Katie Rich, who's still an editor and a good friend of mine, uh, you yeah. know, sat me down and said, Joanna, there's so much devastation in this episode. We could not have handled that <laughs> emotionally. She's like, I'm glad they made that change. And so, I, yeah, the, the darkness of Tyrion, which takes a real turn at this point in the books and has been handled mm-hmm. differently in the show. Um, you know, as much as you can talk about that, what, you know, what are the, some of the choices around, around the treatment of that character? That's an example of the book fan in me doing the same thing in, the, in production. Um, where, you know, we had, we had, we had kept, we had certainly mentioned Taisha, the first wife. And, uh, for, well, and for the listeners, I don't know, maybe you talk about this when you talk with, um, with Richard in the podcast, but, but basically in the, in the books, you find out in that scene where Jamie springs Tyrion, that, oh, by the way, all those years ago, um, that girl that I said I hired as a whore, uh, she actually wasn't. She actually did love you. Right. Um, that, the horror part was a lie. And, which and it's very powerful and and you know and and there are repercussions throughout and all of that. As I recall, we had originally, I think, in, in the very first outline that was in there, and at some point it wasn't. I, I can't remember at this point if it if it didn't make the final outline or if or if it did, and then when the first draft of the script came out, it was gone or whatever. And I remember. My my book my book fan self went nah what what huh? what what's going on 
<laughs> but then I sat back and thought about it, and now rewatching it, I, I absolutely stand by the choice. There's a couple of things. One, the Shay love story was a love story in our show, and the character was a, a, a bigger, deeper part of Tyrion's storyline. Right. Um, so to undercut what an audience, many of whom never read the books, has been experiencing for four seasons with the two of them to undercut the, the, the dramatic uh, uh, payoff and emotion of that storyline with a character we've heard mentioned three times. Right. It, it's just, it's, um, it's bad storytelling. Now it's not bad storytelling in the books because in the books you're in Tyrion's head. Right. And you've been reminded all the time. Yeah. And you've really experienced all of that. And it's, it's, uh, but we, you know, we're, we're, we, we, we're not a flashback show. If we were, if we were a flashback show, we would still be flashing back because there's just too much to flashback <laughs> to. Um, uh, so, and, um, and it's, and, and there's only so many times you can organically mention Taisha and the first marriage in a dialogue scene without it seeming really forced. So, uh, we could have mentioned it nine more times, maybe in the episodes leading up to it. Uh, but there was no way that it wasn't going to feel, again, in the context of the medium that we were writing for, there was no way it wasn't going to feel forced and out of place. Um, and even just rhythmically, even where Jamie is in his story, the fact that on screen, Jamie has never talked about the Taisha scene. So to have a character who, again, when you're, if you're just reading the TV show, bring up this subplot that you haven't really thought about in a while, in the middle of everything else going on, uh, it just would have thrown off the whole thing. So it, it, uh, it was an adaptation. It's a choice I stand by, I guess. No, yeah, but it's like, it's, <laughs> it's that, it's that, you know, famous butterfly effect that we talk about in Game of Thrones where like, sure. you know, um, Jamie tells Tyrion this and Tyrion in revenge in the books, right? Lies and says he killed Joffrey. And that really, you know, right. fractures that relationship. And then as you say, we're inside right. Tyrion's head and, and for the rest of the time that we've had with him in, in George's books, Tyrion is a much angrier person than what we've seen, um, Peter Dinklage portray in the show. Was there ever in, in, in addition to the adaptive choices that you're just talking about, was there ever an adaptive sure. concern of like, we don't want Tyrion, one of our heroes on the show to be quite so alienating to audiences with the degree of darkness that he experiences in the books? I can't speak to any conversations that were had between David and Dan about it, but, um, I don't remember it ever being, you know, and I'm not, I don't mean to, I don't mean to paraphrase what you're saying, but I, there was never a, he's going to be unlikable if he does X yeah, conversation as far as I remember. Yeah, I was trying to s- skirt the word likable, yeah, but no, fair I, enough, I, that's exactly what I <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. And I, no, I don't remember there ever, that ever being a concern, and I don't, that would not be a concern of Peter's at all. Um, I think, I think we, we challenged ourselves in terms of, uh, writing and shooting that, that um, sequence where he kills her because again, in the book, he doesn't, I mean, you know, he, he's, he's sort of obsessed with her, but it's not, it's not the relationship that we, that we, you know, that we had on in our show. So, uh, so there was a bit of a self-defense element and a panic thing sort of thrown into it. I don't remember. I don't remember her ever pulling a knife and trying to kill him and essentially starting the fight in the book. I think that's something that we added to sort of give it more of a, it's, 
like he he chokes her to death. I'm not trying to <laughs> let him off the hook. Right. But it's done in a in a it's done in a more heated, you know, yeah. fight as opposed to a pure, you know, you betrayed me, I'm killing you bitch thing. Um if that makes sense. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, you know, it, it, again, it's messy, which I, which I, I've said this many times you like. uh, to you. It's, it, I like messy. Fans, so yeah. I, I really like that scene for that reason. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, but that was an example of, of, of a, of a, a, a choice that, you know, we would have loved to have honored in terms of the adaptation, but it just didn't, where we had brought the characters in the show universe, it wouldn't have worked. I also don't think given all of the time that we, because, you know, for instance, in season four, you know, if season four is, 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 uh, Tyrion's Law and Order episode, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, uh, Jamie was his, his counsel, yeah. his lawyer, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and in the book, in the book, that's Kevin Lannister, um, who comes to him in the cell and sort of advises him and what's, you know, what's going to happen and everything. And in the show, it was Jamie. So he and Jamie had a hell of a lot more FaceTime and intimate moments in the show. It would have been hard, I think, to pull off Tyrion telling him I murdered Joffrey and Jamie believing him Given all in the context time. of what yeah. we've done in the show. Yeah. That makes in the book, sense. absolutely. Because they've barely seen each other, but they've spent a whole season together in the show. So it's, it's stuff like that where, you know, uh, and I think the butterfly effect, which you mentioned and George has mentioned, it's, it's true. Like you, you make one little adjustment and you have to kind of see it through um, and not try to try to shoehorn things where they, where they won't fit. And, and but it's, that, that was the that was the fun puzzle that uh, that I sort of missed. I miss I missed uh, in the and I really I mean I, I obviously loved the, the last few seasons of the show, but uh, the um, it's adaptation the versus, puzzle of adaptation yeah, yeah, yeah yeah the puzzle of adaptation was was always fun for me yeah, you know, yeah. just in terms of just process I really enjoyed that absolutely well thank you for joining me for this episode of Joanna unintentionally makes Brian Cogman defend adaptive choices when actually she really liked this episode a lot I love everybody. Love you, love you all, fans. I just, I, you know, I know I, I was, it was fun to watch the episode again. I really, I really dug it. <laughs> all right, well, Brian Cogman, thank you again for <laughs> for chatting Game of Thrones with me. Thank you, thank you. All right, so that is it for our episode on season four, episode ten, The Children. Next time, we'll be leaping forward to season five, episode nine, Hard Home. So that's your assignment: it's season five, episode nine. Hard Home. This episode was edited and produced by Dave Gonzalez. Until next time, Richard, where can people find you? I mean, I want to say that I'm going to be in a tree learning the future, but I'm probably going to be on the toilet. <laughs> to be honest. Uh, but also be on Twitter at RyleSVF.com. And Joanna, where can people find you? Oh, you can find me in a lab poking and prodding a, you know, the mountain to see if I can bring him back to life. Um, otherwise, you can find me on VF.com or on Twitter at Joe wrote this, and we will see you next time. Hi, I'm Lale Arakoglu, host of Women Who Travel. Each story from our guests and listeners is totally unique and utterly personal. We love hearing about your first impressions when visiting someplace new. My first trip to the Patagonia region was on the Argentine side. I couldn't believe the expansive territory. It's like being in Tibet. The emptiness and the harshness really, I found transformative. Or a story told when safely back on dry land. 
you know, things happened every single day. I ran out of gas on a jet ski in the middle of the ocean. And I was like, what if a sea creature comes to eat me? But then I'm delusional. I was like, I'll make friends with it and it won't eat me. And maybe I'll ride that back to shore. That's how it works. <laughs> yeah. Join me, Lale Arakoplu, every week for more adventures on women who travel, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Can't get enough of Bachelor Nation. Enter Betch's hilarious Bachelor recap podcast, The Bachelor. Each week, host Kay Brown and me, Jared Freed, recap the latest episodes of The Bachelor and make fun of all the ridiculous things the contestants say and do. Because honestly, why else watch the show if not for the fun commentary? Listeners have called The Bachelor the much-needed humor and commiseration they want after watching the show. Listen to The Bachelor podcast now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcast.